So an idea for the times we live in. Who needs the college campus anyway? College by Internet. You get to learn at home. You make your own schedule. You save money. But did we hear some of this going on already back in 1948? College by radio, when NBC collaborated with the University of Kentucky to put courses on the airwaves. College by television, when Britain ran its great experiment called the Open University. It's been going since 1971. The thing is, the demise of the traditional college campus has been talked about for a long time now, but it has held off against all of these technological assaults so far. And the question is, will it be different this time with online education? Is that a game changer that will make the traditional lecture hall obsolete? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. More clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are here at Columbia University's Miller Theater. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will argue for and against this motion. More clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. Our debate, as always, goes in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose a winner, and only one side wins. Our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. Let's meet our debaters. First, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Anant Agarwal. And Anant, you are a professor at MIT. You are the CEO of edX. That is an online learning platform uh, founded by Harvard and by MIT. Recently, it was announced that Columbia would also become one of its charter members. Uh, Anant, you are not only the CEO and the president of edX, but you also taught its first course, which was circuits and electronics. You had an enrollment of 155,000 students from 162 countries. Is that a, is that a hard course? Um, it's not a hard course. It is a MIT hard course. <laughs> it had uh, differential equations as its prerequisites, and we were petrified we would have 100 people sign up for the course looking at the differential equation prerequisites. We were shocked when we had 10,000 people register in the first hour of announcing it. And before we knew it, 155,000 people signed up for this hard course. How many passed? So more people passed this course than I would be able to teach at MIT if I were to teach at MIT for 40 years. How many passed? 7,200. Wow. But less than 5%. Correct. It's about the same percentage passed the course as MIT admitted into its uh, current batch. MIT admitted 7% of the people who applied to MIT this year, so about the same number passed this MIT hard course. Okay, I can see you're good with numbers. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Let's welcome <laughs> Anant, Anant Agarwal. <laughs> and Anant, tell us who your partner is. The inimical Ben Nelson. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome Ben Nelson, please. Ben, you are also arguing for the motion, more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. In 2010, you left your job as CEO of Snapfish. You had a plan to reinvent the university experience. The result is the Minerva Project. It's an elite, meant to be elite, online undergraduate program, and your plan is to rival the kind of education you can get at the Ivies at a fraction of the cost. And you've said you want to make it more difficult to get into Minerva than to get into Yale. So how many people were in your inaugural class? So we admitted 45 students uh, this year. That represents a 2.5% acceptance rate. Uh, and we admitted 
the students not based on an artificial capacity constraint, but we actually admitted every single person that passed our bar. Uh, and one of these extraordinary students is right there in the audience. Where are you? <laughs> we'll chat with you later. You can ask a question. So, so it's obviously, there's, obviously you're finding a market for this. Absolutely. Our, the demand that we have, have received for Minerva has been extraordinary because we not only are tapping a global market, but we also are approaching admissions purely on the basis of the human potential of this candidate and not about their lineage or uh, who their parents are, what country they were born in. But you want it to be elite. We, we are designing the curriculum such that it is made for the very the very most capable people in the world. Okay, so by one definition, it's elite. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks to Ben Carver, and welcome to the debate. Our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete, and we have two debaters who are arguing against this motion. First, please welcome Jonathan Cole. Jonathan, this is a home crowd for you. You are the John Mitchell Mason Professor at Columbia University. You've served 14 years as provost dean of, and dean of faculties. You wrote the book, The Great American University. You wrote the book about this whole story, which traces the origins and the evolution of American higher education. You've been in academia your entire career, and this particular university, Columbia, uh, you have seen through decades and decades of change and growth. And just to give the audience an idea of how much change and growth, what year did you actually start at Columbia? I uh, began it in 1960, the fall of 1960. I've never left, and I say I'm not gainfully employable by any other institution, quite frankly. (laughs) Um, But I've been here. I've gone through uh, many roles, and I've seen many changes from wearing a beanie as a freshman and having tug-of-wars with ropes to, uh, well, I won't go into the rest. (laughs) Back in 1960, you had to ride a horse to get to class? Um, <laughs> if, if you had a horse. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Cole. And Jonathan, your partner is? Uh, Rebecca Shulman. She's um, fantastic, irrepressible, and logically incredibly sound. Ladies and gentlemen, Rebecca Shulman. Rebecca Schumann, you are arguing against the motion, more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. You're a columnist for Slate. Um, You are also a writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, and with its Vitae project. You are also an adjunct professor professor at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. You teach German. Uh, So you are really in the trenches. This is the real world for you, and you're living it. Um, we're, We're curious, have you ever had a conversation with your students in your German class about their preferences or dislike, however, for online education and for what are called MOOCs? Yeah, actually, I was just talking to them about it yesterday. I don't teach German right now. I teach um, something similar to the core curriculum here at Columbia, actually. I teach the freshman literature sequence. And I asked them yesterday, how do you guys feel about MOOCs and how do you feel about online classes? They didn't know what MOOCs are, and most of them do not like their online classes. Well, that sounds like an advantage for your side already. (laughs) All right, ladies and gentlemen, Rebecca Schumann, thank you very much. And we're going to be hearing that term MOOCs, so stay tuned to hear it defined because it's important. Now, this is a debate, uh, and that means it's actually a contest, a clash of ideas. And one side will win and one side will lose. And that will be determined by the vote of our live audience here at Columbia University. We want to go now to set you up to vote twice, once before the debate and once again afterwards. And the way that we uh, determine the winner is the team whose numbers have changed the most. So we want to set you up with the first vote. Uh, 
go to the keypad at your seat and register for us where you stand at this point on this motion. More clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. If you agree with this motion, at this point, push number one. And if you disagree with this motion, push number two. And if you are undecided, push number three. And the system will lock out in about um, 20 seconds. If you push the wrong button, just correct yourself. It'll lock in your most recent vote, and you can ignore the other keys. They're not live. And again, at the end of the debate, we'll have you vote a second time, and we look at the difference between the votes, and the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. So we're going to go in three rounds, and we're going to start now with round one. Round one. Our motion is this. More clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And here in round one to open and arguing for the motion, Anant Agarwal, he is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT and the CEO of edX, an online learning destination founded by Harvard and MIT. He'll be making his way to the lectern to make his opening statement. It will be seven minutes long, uninterrupted. Ladies and gentlemen, Anant Agarwal. Let me just correct. I said seven minutes. It's a six-minute uh, statement. Thank you. You know, I'm, I'm going back to, uh, to when I was an undergraduate, uh, oh, my God, uh, 30 years ago, 32, 31 years ago. I'm sitting in class, and this is like most of the classes I've been in. This was an IIT in Madras. Lots of bright kids around me, extraordinarily bright. And the fifth-minute mark was my uh, sort of the transition point. I would follow everything the lecturer did, the instructor did until the fifth-minute mark. And then at the fifth-minute mark, I would lose the professor. And I would look around, and, and everybody seemed to be following the professor, but I would have lost the professor. And then I spent the remaining hour simply scrambling, taking notes. Completely, I just lost the professor, scrambling, taking down every word, with no idea what is going on. I wonder how many of you in the audience have felt like that in a classroom. I won't ask for a show of hands. I just want you to think about it. I certainly felt, uh, oh, my God, everybody, everybody around me knows what's going on. What's, what's up with me? Our education system, this, this whole system of the lecture and getting together a large number of students in the classroom really is based on the factory model of education. Put a whole bunch of people sitting in the classroom, and, uh, and then you have a person lecturing at them. It's a very, very efficient system. It started about 1,000 years ago, and this university, Bologna, is still standing. It's 1,000 years old. And you know what? Nothing has changed. You could wake up a thousand years behind you, a thousand years ahead, and absolutely nothing has changed. Everything has changed around us, but the university education system hasn't. Our communication is different. We don't have to yell across, uh, you know, continent. That we have smartphones. Our medical system has uh, changed. We don't have to hit somebody on the head to knock them unconscious and operate very quickly. We have laparoscopy today. But education system hasn't changed. We can fly from one continent to another, communicate in all kinds of ways, but our education system hasn't changed. Don't we believe it is important? We can do the online education of today is very different from my grandfather's uh, online education. It's completely different today. In this new system, we can use self-based learning. Just imagine I can watch a video of an instructor. I can pause the video. I can rewind the video. Not once, but six times. Heck, I can even mute the professor. <laughs> the, 
this, this self-pacing allows me to learn at my own pace. I wish I had that when I was, uh, you know, I was an undergraduate student. Another thing, I would submit my homework, and I would get the graded homework back two weeks later if I was lucky. I still haven't gotten some homeworks back 32 years later. <laughs> no, no feedback. The feedback came too late. I wasn't interested in the feedback when it came late. But with online learning today, if you go on to edX.org or one of the MOOC platforms, feedback is instantaneous. We can grade all kinds of questions, equations. We can even grade essays, believe it or not. So that feedback comes instantly. I can get a, something's wrong. I can think about it, try to fix it. I can learn. In fact, I learn the most when something is wrong. I say, heck, what did I do here? I can try to fix it. Instant feedback is critical. And there are many, many, many studies. Education researchers have known this for 40 years. Study by Chen in 2003 showed that if you provide instant feedback, students learn better. If you don't provide instant feedback, uh, they don't uh, learn as well. We also do another thing. We use active learning. Again, these ideas are old ideas. We've just not applied them. So uh, a very famous paper by Craig and Lockhart talked about active learning. Heck, just go back to Socrates. It's a Socratic method. You know, you teach by asking questions. So here what we do is we can interleave videos with interactive exercises. So you watch a video at your own pace, then you go answer a question to see if you've learned the material or not. This is mastery learning. If you haven't quite gotten it, you go back and review the video, other materials, you come back and you try it again. So this way, you, you don't pace forward until you have picked up and really learned the material. And studies like the Craig and Lockhart study from as, old as, as, as early as 72 has shown that this, again, improves learning outcomes. So online learning today incorporates all of these principles and it's completely different from uh, what it was before. We can even bring gamification into our system. We can do online labs. Uh, check out the demo course on edX, um, on edX. It's called Demo 101. We have online labs in biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, where people can play around and bring gamification into the picture. Our millennial generation is completely different. Just uh, uh, two weeks ago, I, was rem I remember walking past my daughter's room. She's 14. And she's lying in bed, and she's got three screens in front of her. Okay, on one screen, she's doing physics web assign. On the second screen, she's swiped my iPad, and she's watching Netflix. And on the third screen, she's WhatsApping, you know, whatever that is, uh, with her friends. It's not tweeting anymore. It's WhatsApping with her friends. And, and they learn differently. The millennial generation is able to do these things. And then in the classroom, you still need that. You know, they interact with each other, learn the soft skills, and so on and so forth. But they can get all of the content and so on completely online, and that's how they want to learn. They want gamification. They want engagement. Not, not the same old boring lecture where I lost the professor after the first minute, uh, first minute everywhere. Everybody should really have a high-quality education. And with online learning, I can really bring this to the classroom as well and bring in, bring in online learning to create the blended model of learning. In an experiment we did with San Jose State University, they used their online material in class to create the blended model. Students would watch videos and interactive exercises and this active learning model before they came to class. And in class, they would ask questions of the professor, interact with other students, and uh, learn some of the soft skills and collaboration. But the big part was online. And here, they demonstrated that traditionally, where students would, 60% of the students would pass the course, 40% would fail. In this blended model at San Jose State using our material online, they found that the failure rate fell to 9%. Anant Agarwal, I'm Thank sorry you. your time is up. Thank you very much. Anant Agarwal, ladies and gentlemen.
Our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And here to make his uh, position clear against this motion, Jonathan Cole. He is the John Mitchell Mason Professor at Columbia University, where he served as provost and dean of faculties. Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Cole. Thank you. And then there were MOOCs, the latest technological messianic movement that will disrupt and then save higher education. I want to make 12 points in six minutes as to why you should vote against the motion that more clicks will end the need for BRICS and alter fundamentally the nature of higher education. Online education will not replace the great colleges and universities in the United States. It's the selective colleges, MOOCs, will be one of many forms of new technology that will be useful, mostly for courses, as was pointed out by my worthy opponent, for those where you can get the right answer that's at the back of the book. For all other courses where there are subtleties in interpretation, where there's a need to argument, for a close-knit community of participants, where there's a need for critical thinking, for close reading, where analysis plays back and moderates initial formulations, MOOCs will be less useful. In fact, as the biological scientist Stuart Feinstein says, questions are more relevant than answers. Indeed, Richard Levin recently signed on as the CEO of Coursera, and he said that it couldn't replace the traditional four-year residential college. Let's take the democratizing effect. Levin says that's what one of the purposes is. But who, in fact, takes those courses from all over the world? A noble purpose. The people who take that course, at least from the evidence that we have to the moment, are people who are already educated, not the people who we're trying to target for education. <clears throat> the next point is that there is no good empirical evidence that supports the idea that MOOCs represent a disruptive technology that will overturn the current business model of the best colleges and universities. Let me just tick off a few of the things for which there is absolutely no good empirical evidence. There's no economic or cost model that has been shown to work. The cost of creating content is very high. Friends of mine have told me that they spend $100,000, $200,000, or $300,000 a course. In short, there's no evidence that MOOCs will, in fact, lower the cost of tuition. There's no method that has been shown as to how intellectual property will be divided up, how much will go to the professors, how much to the university. There's no good evidence that MOOCs have a democratizing effect, <clears throat> as much as they might be desirable to have a democratizing effect. There's no good evidence on how people with different learning styles respond to the flipped classroom and the MOOC culture on campus. There's no good evidence on how you can examine thousands of people taking online courses without massive cheating. There's no good evidence about who drops out of MOOC courses. Those 7,000 who graduated may well have been people who already took the course at MIT. Now, how do we know who they really are and what their characteristics are? 72% of the professors who answered a questionnaire about teaching online courses who are committed to them said that they would not give credit for those who did well in the course. Sebastian Troon is one of the founders of, of uh, one of the uh, leading MOOCs, Udacity, has said, 
We were on the front pages of newspapers and magazines, and at the same time, I was realizing we don't educate people as others wished or as I wished. We have a lousy product. It was a painful moment. People learn from each other when they eat together, read together, converse together, sleep together. If nothing else, sex will reinforce bricks over clicks <laughs> on the campus. This is not to say I want you to know that the Khan Academy, where small, short, highly focused courses are offered, won't be appealing to some. It is and it will be. But it is not going to end the need for the kind of close interaction that we need to find in the classroom, in physical structures. MOOCs will not solve the cost disease. I will answer what the cost disease is and why it won't actually lower tuition and the increases in tuition that you have read about in the papers during our next uh, part of this debate. Let many platforms grow. I don't know how many of you have seen Brian Greene, the physicist at Columbia's new platform on, uh, that he created for the World Science Fair. It takes place in New York. He built it himself. It is for people who know nothing about science to Nobel Prize winners. It is far more sophisticated than the platforms like edX. One ought to allow many of these platforms to grow and see how they work. MOOCs are one tool that will help to make higher learning better, not cheaper, for both undergraduates and professional school students. It's not likely to infiltrate the world of the laboratory, however. Remember what makes American universities the greatest system of higher learning in the world is the research discoveries that have changed our lives and the lives of people around the world. You never hear the MOOC discussers, the MOOC proponents, talk about the influence of MOOCs on laboratory life. It will have a tremendous effect on accessing information, JSTOR, ArtStor, digital libraries. All of these things are wonderful inventions and part of technology that help us learn. But that is no substitute for being able to analyze Moby Dick. Jonathan Cole, your time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you. And here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. You have heard from the first two debaters. And now on to the third. I'd like to welcome to the lectern uh, Ben Nelson. He is the founder, chairman, and CEO of the Minerva Project. That is a new online undergraduate program that aims to reinvent the university experience. And Ben, I, we had four teachers up here, and I was hoping that one of them would, in the opening statements, explain to those who do not know what a MOOC is. So I want to give you an extra 15 seconds sure. before you launch to tell uh, everyone in our audience and our listeners what this odd word means and why it is exceedingly relevant to this discussion. Right. Uh, so a MOOC is a massive open online course, and as uh, Jonathan pointed out, it is one of several formats and technologies used for online education. That's perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, in his opening statement, please welcome Ben Nelson. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you, Jonathan, for pointing out two very important things. First, that I should have absolutely gone to Columbia as an undergrad because they have sex in class. Uh, 
and uh, I, I certainly uh, uh, made a huge mistake going to Penn. Uh, we did not have that. Uh, and secondly, thank you for making such a compelling argument to vote for this motion. Uh, the, what, what Jonathan put uh, together as the framework was a critique of the state of online education, not even online education, but a segment of online education today as it stands. It was not a critique of the potential of online education, and it was based on an analysis of a very small portion of American higher education. The small courses in the most elite institutions in the United States. But we're not talking about the future of the most elite institutions. We're talking about the future of higher education in general. And so let's look at the facts. The facts of the matter is, or the facts of the matter are, that when you look at what even the elite universities do, they are largely about disseminating knowledge. Lecture-based courses, the lecture hall, where a university professor stands up in front of a large audience, gets paid three, four hundred thousand dollars fully loaded, and teaches one, maybe two courses a year to 200 students, is not an economically viable model. And it is, in fact, a worse form of delivery than what the Anant described. The very first version, the version 1.0 of these massive open online courses. The fact of the matter is, is that all of the problems listed about MOOCs, whether we're talking about who is taking them, cheating, whether we're talking about the completion rates, whether we're talking about whether or not it's economical to create the upfront costs, all of those problems got solved over time. And even before they do, with identity verification online, with the fact that once you create one of these MOOCs, it can be taken to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Once you realize that the fact that these courses are not completed or they're taken by the, uh, the people who already have a university education, not because they're the only ones that can benefit from them, but because today they're not issued for credit. Compare completion rates at massive open online courses that are there purely for fun versus the completion rate at Chicago Community College. They're both in the single-digit percentages. But when you go to Chicago Community College, you're going there and paying to get your associate's degree. Here you have an opportunity to learn for free. And you have an opportunity to learn at your own pace with those around you. But let's go beyond the lecture. Let's address even the most esoteric elements of higher education. The close conversations between students and professor in small groups that explore subject matter. Well, turns out you can do that online as well, and you can do it in a better way than you can in an offline classroom. When we first created our platform at Minerva, which is limited to 19 students per course, every student is on live video, we went to the University of Washington Medical School, and we tested a very rudimentary version of our platform with a live class offline and a live class online taught by the same professor, the same subject matter. The results were universally accepted, that the online class was far superior to the offline class, simply for the fact of the matter that even though there were the same number of students in the class, when you look straight into that camera and the professor sees your face and all of the other students see, you, see your face, you are at paying attention. The professor can call on students and ask them a question and find out what they're going to answer rather than having them ask or answer at random. 
So the professor can choose to pick not the right answer, but the spectacularly wrong answer, which is interesting. One that curates the course of the conversation in ways that simply are not possible offline. What we all have to remember is we are at the dawn of interactive, high-quality, personalized education, whether it's a broadcast to many, whether it's in a small seminar format, or whether it is done in an individualized adaptive learning platform that caters the process of education to the individual student. But the fact that we are at the dawn means that none of us in this room, including Anant and myself who are working on this every day, can conceive where this will bring us in the future. Here's what we do know. We do know that when students are given the option of going to their illustrious lectures, even at the world's best universities, there are far more students on the first day of class than there are on the last day. We know that oftentimes when you ask students, did the courses that you took in your college career change your life? Did they make an impactful change in the way you perceive the world? Majority of students say no. We know that technologies will continue to improve and will bring the intellectual development of students, not just among the elite, but among students around the world to a newer and higher level. Thank you. Thank you, Ben Nelson. Our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And now to hear, to put forward her argument against this motion, let's welcome Rebecca Schumann. She is a columnist for Slate and the, for the Chronicle of Higher Education's Vitae Hub and the author of the forthcoming book, Kafka and Wittgenstein. Ladies and gentlemen, Rebecca Schumann. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here and to my co-panelists for just presenting. Anant, I try really hard to get my assignments back to my students really fast. I really try my best, and I always make it under two weeks. But now I'm going to try even harder. Um, I really appreciate, Jonathan, that you brought up the fact that uh, in person we like to teach classes where you can't get, get the answers in the back of the book. In my class, there is no back of the book, or the back of the book is just the last chapter of the book. It wouldn't really help. Um, and uh, Ben, I did not know I made four hundred thousand dollars a year to te- I, I teach two classes a year and I make uh, I make fourteen thousand dollars a year. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm doing it wrong. All right. So what I want to talk to you guys about is the MOOC I'm taking right now. Uh, I'm taking a MOOC. I'm taking a MOOC with edX. Um, and when you sign up with edX, they ask you why you're signing up. And I wrote, definitely not for opposition research for the debate I'm going to do. Um, <laughs> I didn't say that. Um, it's called Think 101X, the Science of Everyday Thinking, um, with two great professors from Australia. And I say I love it. It's great. It's really fun. I've learned all sorts of uh, different nefarious ways my own brain goes behind my back to thwart me. I love it. It's fantastic. It's pretty easy. It doesn't take too much time. I've learned a lot. Am I on the right? Should I go over there? Did I? Um, But I'm a 37-year-old American with a doctorate. I already know how to learn. I learn for fun. I do it as a hobby. And it's a great hobby for me as a dabbler. But I don't think that it is an adequate replacement for college yet. Uh, There are a lot of reasons for this. But the number one reason for this is really just one word. And that word is contacts. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you'll vote no on the motion, more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete because more clicks means less contact. Less contact with professors like me. I'm not a superstar. I'm not a celebrity. 
I'm not a millionaire. I don't even have tenure, and I never will. But that doesn't matter to my students. I want to talk a little bit about some of my students today. I have one student who lives with dyslexia, and she is so smart in class. She's just brilliant in class, but her written work really suffers. And if she were taking uh, an online course, she might be mistaken quite unfairly for somebody who was not as bright as she is or drunk, maybe. (laughs) I don't know. But the fact that we can actually talk to each other in class has changed her life because she knows that I know how smart she is. I have another student who's so shy that he shook last semester in class. Whenever I called on him, I have ways of getting students to pay attention, by the way. Um, he shook when I called on him. He, he gave a presentation, and he actually stopped halfway through because he went so clammy. Two weeks ago, he came in, second semester, same class. Dostoevsky killed it, did such a great job, blew us all away, and I was talking to him about his story because I wanted to use it today, and he said, well, I want you to know that our class has helped me learn how to talk to people. The importance of that. cannot be overstated. It has helped him learn how to talk to people. So people, my students, actual real people, I know them, they know me. I don't just enter their lives with the dissemination of content. They enter mine, and we connect. We make contact. And that's important when things are going well in class. It's even more important when things are going poorly. Uh, the Community College Research Center right here at Columbia did a multi-year study where they determined that when students at community colleges and, um, and other sort of non-prestige institutions are struggling and they're taking classes online, they're much more likely to fail, they're much more likely to drop out, they're much more likely to give up. So I urge you to vote no on this motion, more clicks, fewer bricks, because with every click, the student loses contact. With every click, the student loses opportunities for growth. With every click, the student might even lose their future. So right now, students aren't just failing online classes in enormous numbers, although they are. Online classes are also failing them. I have a lot more to say on this, but I'd like to transition to the discussion. But while I am, I'm going to be thinking about my students who all waived their right to privacy for me to be able to shout out to them today. So I hope that, like me, you'll be thinking of Miranda and Emma and Alex and Alex and Sarah, Sarah and Sarah, Caitlin, Amanda, Katrina, Megan, Braxton, Annie, DJ, Casey, Nick, Sammy, another Rebecca, not me, um, Josh, Jake and James, Taylor, Ryan, Elvin and Ethan, Josie and Dimitri. I think that they deserve contact. I think they deserve devoted personal attention. MOOCs are great for dabbling and they're great for supplementary education, but I don't think they're a substitute for human interaction. Uh, The Minerva Project sounds fascinating, and I heard that you were hiring. Uh, You probably pay more than I make. Uh, But no matter how advanced software is, I still don't think that it can replace face-to-face and being in the same room. Interaction is the most important part of college. It can be the difference between success and failure. And because of that, I urge you to vote no today on the motion, more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca Schumann. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate.
where our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. Remember now how you voted in uh, just before the debate began. We're going to have you vote again after you hear all of the arguments. And again, to remind you, the team whose numbers have changed the most will be declared our winner. Now we move on to round two. And round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and from you in the live audience. The motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. Arguing for the motion, we have heard from Anand Agarwal and Ben Nelson. They have argued that uh, critics of online education are, are, are looking at the laws and how it is now and failing to see the potential that it has uh, at the era that this is now only the dawn of. They say that it can improve uh, dramatically and, and catch up in a field academia where nothing has changed for eons, that there's an advantage, in fact, to being able to stop a professor and wind and rewind and even silence if you want to, that there's a generation now, the millennial generation, who are essentially wired to learn this way, that it will connect to them, that there are different learning styles and that the technology can adapt to all of them. The technology allows that. The team arguing against the motion, Rebecca Schumann and Jonathan Cole, they have argued, they put it this way, um, people learn from each other, said Jonathan Cole, contact is critical, said uh, Rebecca Schumann. They argue that um, uh, too much of an education, too much of education is not just about the answers in the book, but it's about what develops over uh, time in an intimate, close contact, that, uh, that that is critical and that software can't uh, be the answer for everybody. Now, I want to point out that there is, a, there is a level of nuance to this debate. Neither team is deep into their corner where they don't see merit in the other side's argument. The team arguing more clicks, fewer bricks is not saying no bricks ever again. And the team on the other side is not saying no clicks ever. Uh, they, they concede that around the margins, the team arguing against are, concedes that around the margins, um, sure, uh, some online education can be supplemental and useful. And the team on the other side is saying, um, sure, uh, there needs to be a way to have human contact. And the Minerva project uh, that Ben Nelson is sponsoring builds that in. So let's l make it clear that this is not uh, this kind of fight to the death over this issue. But it's, an, it's a discussion over emphasis. And I think on the emphasis, there is a, a, a wide gulf. And I think some of that emphasis has to do with faith in technology itself to solve some of the problems, particularly since the side arguing for the motion is saying, well, we're at the dawn of a new era, and you have to see how much it can improve. So I want to I put the question to the side that's arguing for the motion and making that point that we're at the dawn of a new era. As I pointed out in the opening, we've heard this before. Correspondence courses were going to democratize education, and they didn't. The Open University in the United Kingdom, now there are people who have degrees for that, but the great universities of England haven't flinched whatsoever. Um, and, and the radio courses, et cetera. We've heard that technology was going to change the game dramatically so many times in the past. Why is it different this time, Ben Nelson? Well, I would argue it has helped. Um, and I think you have to understand the context. Think of general population uh, educational levels in the 1930s around the world. What the radio has done and television has done to... Uh, to teach people and disseminate information has been dramatic. For example, in India, it's something like 100 million people have learned to read from a program that adds subtitles to Indian uh, soap operas. Uh, and the eye naturally learns to read those uh, those subtitles. But, but let me stop you there, Ben, just in the interest yeah. of time, because my, my point is that that has not had much impact on the university model, which, your, par which your partner says hasn't changed forever. Correct. Why and not? It's not interactive. It's broadcast. 
This is an interactive medium. Okay, let me put that to the other side, that the game changer, Rebecca Schumann, your opponents are saying, is that it's interactive this time. It truly is two-way. It's not a letter through the mail to your professor with your answers. What's your response to that? Well, the current technology, I would say, just isn't interactive enough. I think that students lose motivation when they don't have their peers around them to pressure them to go to class. Um, I don't teach online at UMSL, where I teach right now, but um, I have colleagues who do. And they have interactive components, but it still doesn't really engage the students. And when the students start having trouble, they tend to really just give up. Anant? I think the big difference this time around is twofold. One is interactivity. I think the second big one is exactly the point that my opponents are making, which we can bring online, and it's called peer-to-peer learning. If you look at Facebook and Twitter and all of these peer groups where, 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 where teens and, and grown-ups in the billions are interacting with each other online, why can't we bring that? Why, why are we scared of technology? Let's bring that into our learning and education system and fold that in how people learn online so that the peer learning is part of the platform and as on edX. The whole discussion forum is part of the learning process. Jonathan Cole. Well, uh, I'd like to just uh, quote from uh, Sherry Turkle, who wrote a wonderful little book called Alone Together. Uh, And she's an MIT colleague of yours. And she said, technology is seductive when what it offers meets our human vulnerabilities. And as it turns out, we are very vulnerable indeed. We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections and the sociable robot may offer the illusions of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our network life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other, which I think often is reflected in the social media and the kinds of contacts that people make through technology. It is not the kind of interaction that students have debating each other in class, involving the individual in structure to force people to confront their biases and presuppositions, to read texts extraordinarily um, uh, closely that can be useful in other ways. I don't believe it's possible yet. Ben Nelson, respond, please. Well, uh, I encourage all of you after the debate to go and find our our student in the audience because she's been on the platform that not only enables that, but enables you to have the kinds of debates, the kind of interactions, the kinds of interrogations of students that actually is even more difficult in an offline environment. When you build a platform to teach 100,000 students, that's not your goal. Your goal is not to build a platform that optimized for one-on-one debate. When you build a platform that's about uh, bringing the seminar and adding data to pick which two students will be the ones on both sides of the debate, which kinds of analyses should you go back to in class and listen from another section so you can build upon that makes online seminars even richer. So even though we don't have as many students on those platforms, this resolution is about where the future of universities will go. The technologies are here now. They will get propagated. One of the things that came up in the discussions about MOOCs, certainly in the heyday of excitement about their early inception, was that they could reach hundreds of thousands of people. If they reach people in the seminar type of arrangement with 15 or 20 people, it may be possible to generate some of the kind of discourse that you're talking about. But that's not where 
the imagery of the MOOCs really come from? So, so remember, I, I just have to respond to that. It turns out that MOOCs are and online learning in this form are two years old. We're comparing it to a thousand-year-old system which has failed. The economic model Wait, which has exist. failed, the MOOC or the, the uh, thousand-year-old system? The thousand-year-old university system has well, failed. Well, it had a long, they long run at a thousand years. I wouldn't <laughs> call that failure. They still don't have an economic model. But the point is that in terms of small seminar, the simple mechanism we introduced on the edX platform is called a cohort. You can create Google Instant Hangouts and small groups of five and ten people interact with each other. And it's much more connecting than a professor picking one student out of a class while 300 other students are sitting there twiddling their thumbs. But I don't necessarily want my students to be in charge of each other. I love them. I love them to death. But Would you mind naming them again? <laughs> <laughs> their, their peer review, you know, they're freshmen. I, I got rid of peer review in my class because it was like the inmates running the prison. It made the papers worse. It made things, they don't, they're bright, they're inquisitive, they're great, but they don't quite know enough yet to help each other learn in the way that I can help them learn. That's a really interesting point, and I think maybe goes to the, to, to, uh, to the whole notion of authority versus uh, uh, the, the, uh, the inmates running the asylum, as they say. Ben Nelson, what about that? Is that part of what this conflict is about? Uh, uh, well, I, I think that's a wonderful Intelligence Squared debate for another time. But we shouldn't conflate the enabling technology with the educational philosophy. The question is, what sh- can the educational technology no, provide? No, no, no. I think we should conflate those things. Well, I mean, I, I, think, I, think, I think it's relevant because she's actually giving a reason why she needs to be there in the classroom kind of running things. She can, if she can be there in a 15-person breakout. So there's nothing preventing the okay. edX platform from having the professor jump from breakout to breakout. That's just a philosophical point of view. Right? So, so your argument, really, the side that's arguing for uh, fewer clicks, uh, uh, more clicks, fewer bricks, uh, you're talking about, you're basically, you have a faith that ultimately the technology can address all, all or nearly all of the criticisms nearly that are coming all. from the other side. You have a lot of faith that, it, that it's flexible, adaptable, and that it's only learning. Absolutely. All right, That's I want to take one. that to the other side. So that's philosophically what your opponents are saying, is that you ain't seen nothing yet, and, you're, and, and it, it, it's going to be amazing. And I want to sort of get a response from your side about well, that. Well, uh, we didn't Cole. see anything yet at the dot-com bubble either, uh, and that kind of exploded, but the technology was worse at, at the time. I guess what I would also say is that learning does not only take place in the lecture room. And the, the, the nature of the bricks that bring people together and are part of the learning experience go far beyond necessarily the lecture room. And part of the subtitle of this debate is really whether or not the format and the structures and even the architecture of the old university setting will be obsolete. And I believe that students learn perhaps almost as much or as much outside of the classroom interacting in these physical spaces as they do uh, in the but classroom. But, Jonathan, I think your, your opponents concede that point, but they say that the analogies of those physical spaces can be created online, that those social interactions can happen online. Yeah, well, I, did, I think the... Even uh, the sex can happen uh, online. <laughs> Would you turn me to that program? That <laughs> uh, what's the website? <laughs> uh, um, no, I... Well, there I just simply, uh, you know, disagree. I mean, I think that when we are dealing with, let's say, a course that allows you to get answers that are known answers, I have no doubt that this new technology can have an extraordinary influence. But a great teacher 
talking about the subtleties of text, about being a perfect reader, of how reading will influence your life, not only in terms of enjoyment. That, I think, I've yet to be demonstrated. This is an assertion by our opponents, our worthier opponents. It is not demonstrated. And as I said earlier, there are a lot of empirical questions that I haven't heard any answers to thus far from uh, my worthy We're going to come back to some of those, but I want to let Anant respond to what you just said. Sure. Um, so you mentioned that. Uh, I, think, I think we're making a mistake here. You're comparing the best teacher. I would love to be in your class, uh, Rebecca. I think it would be, be delightful with a class of 10 or 15 working with Rebecca. That is fantastic. But how many people around the world, how many children in the U.S. or the rest of the world can afford that kind of luxury to have a great teacher in a small classroom setting? talking about grading uh, uh, non-fixed uh, answers at the end of textbooks, we have technology today where we can grade essays using machine learning technology. And if you talk to the teachers in the California school district, they're saying they're giving their children fewer essays because they just don't have the time to grade. I know teachers in high school. I know my wife who teaches. They spend hours and hours grading essays. And that is a good thing. And as long as I can get Rebecca to grade my essays and give me instant feedback, that is fantastic. But what about all the students where teachers are not able to give essays and writing assignments because they don't have time to grade? We have technology today in experimental form that will be able to grade essays using machine learning technology. Okay, let's let Rebecca respond to some of that. Rebecca Schumann. I mean, I don't like grading essays. I wrote a very popular article on Slate about how I would like to stop assigning them because I don't like grading them. Um, But when I grade them, I do grade them pretty fast. Uh, essay grading technology is not very good right now. It might get better, but I mean, when I think about the idea that a robot can replace the nine years of post-college higher education that I had doing my PhD, reading 13 hours a day, learning breadth and depth, really just piercing into the inner depths of my brain and scraping around inside it, I, I have to confront that technological possibility with sheer terror. I don't know if I want to be in a world where a robot can do what I have worked so hard and sacrificed so much and trained so much to do. But Rebecca, but Rebecca we're not, uh, not comparing you. I know, but that, I that was exactly my anyone point. who can that, that, an essay. But, but, but I'm, I'm with Anant on, on his point being, what, let's take, put aside the impact on you and how discouraging that would be to you. What about the impact on your students? Of having a robot grade their paper? Yes, They'd learn how to game the robot immediately. But the point is not simply writing papers. Even the most conservative organization in the world, the college board and the SAT, are giving up the essay part of the, of the SAT examinations because they are doing the grading by rote, in effect. They're not nuanced. They're not teaching students how to think for themselves independently, which is a very difficult thing to do. Now, maybe it is, is doable through technology, but I haven't seen it demonstrated. Well, and, and, and again, I, I, I do think that we're, we're, we're rat-holing on a, on a piece of content. I happen to agree with you both. I mean, I do think that at the very high levels of education, you do want people who are experts in the subject to grade essays. That has nothing to do about where the class occurs. The, stu- the professor doesn't sit in front of uh, a lecture hall or even a 10-person class and says, hold on a second while I read this paper and grade it. That's not a very interactive format. It's not very engaging. 
And so the question is, what is the cost structure that is going to be built around actually disseminating that education? And even in small format, even in a scenario where we believe in, where you actually do want a very tight student-faculty interaction, 15 to 19-person classes, we still opt to use technology to facilitate the goings-on in the classroom because we think that it can enhance the experience for the student and dramatically lower the cost, where you don't need to build buildings and maintain campuses, where you can gather the students and have them experience what the world has to offer as opposed to necessarily in a very expensive, very exclusive campus environment. Jonathan Cole. Well, I mean, first of all, I think that, you know, educators have done a terrible job, uh, especially at the selective colleges, at dealing with the issue of cost. And students at Harvard graduate with no debt. They have a tremendous endowment. Columbia College students graduate with about $6,000 worth of debt, but the sticker price is the only thing that is talked about. So it's not as if those who can't afford it, who come from, uh, from uh, you know, poor socioeconomic backgrounds can't go to these, uh, these great colleges. I think there's a conflation, however, if I can switch a bit, between what the purposes are of these MOOCs. Are they to democratize the world, as it were, which in some ways may well be hegemonic, who owns knowledge, uh, to reach hundreds of thousands of people? Or is it to hold seminars in a different way with 16 or 17 people? Those are very different types of issues and questions. It seems to me Ben is trying to do one thing, and it seems to me that edX is trying to do something slightly different. Is that a fair depiction of the two of you? Oh, absolutely. I think there's different ways of using technology in the classroom. Every click is not the same. And uh, Ben is doing using clicks in one way. We're using clicks in another way. I think the point here, the debate is about more clicks and fewer bricks. Can we improve the classroom experience? Can we improve the way we teach students? Can we teach more students than can have access to a great Rebecca um, in, in a 15-room class? Can we create using technology the approach where people can learn from each other through peer learning online? Can we access? Can we increase educational access to millions of more students around the world that just don't have access to, uh, to the Rebecca's of the world. And Jonathan, let's take, let's then, uh, we just heard Anand talk about people not having access. In fact, it is an argument for the MOOC. What's your response to that? Well, I mean, you know, if you say don't have access uh, to uh, the MOOC, I'm not sure who you're referring to, uh, frankly. Um, well, but let's, I want- let's find out. Who are you referring to? So I'm referring to uh, all the children and students that either cannot afford college, uh-huh or that leave college with huge amounts of debt, or that simply don't have access to college. Uh, Okay, okay, that's that's an answer. And that is a wonderful aim and a wonderful objective that I actually fully endorse. But the evidence that I've seen, and it's bad, you know, it's not particularly good evidence, empirical evidence, suggests that the people in remote places that can't get to MIT, can't get to, you know, Amherst or Williams or wherever it might be, are people who are already educated. They are the ones who are signing on for these courses and may well be enjoying them, but it's not reaching the population yet that I think would have, you know, it is, would have very beneficial Is that correct, Ben Nelson? I think, I think that's, or Anand, is that correct? See, again, I think it's, it's how you play with numbers. So we have uh, 2.2 million learners on edX, and of that, 30%, that is 600,000, are high school and college students. And so just because 70% of learners already have a degree doesn't mean that we are still not reaching. We are reaching more students at the college age and high school level 
today than the largest university in the United States. And so we cannot, so we really cannot say that we're not reaching students in the right demographic. We are. And, and I would Benazi. add to Anand's point that if these universities would actually issue a degree alongside with that, you wouldn't have 600,000 students, you'd have 60 million. The, one of the reasons that, that people don't complete is um, the same reason that people who sometimes read a textbook uh, from cover to cover decide, hmm, I got to chapter five, that was good enough, thank you. Right? There is no point except for interest right now. Well, Rebecca Schumann, do you, do you see the democratization argument that is to some degree being made by the other side? Well, um, you know, yes, I think that it does, the numbers are, it does reach more people than not having it would reach. But I, again, I agree with Jonathan that it doesn't necessarily reach the kind of people that it had originally intended to reach. And that shows in the corporate directions of edX's two main competitors, Coursera and Udacity, both of whom have decided to concentrate on corporate training uh, instead of the sort of loftier democratization of education. Um, and it also comes at the expense of people like me. Uh, there, you know, you, I love that you think that I'm irreplaceable and that everybody should just be in my class, but I am not that special. There are literally over a million low-level professors just like me in the United States right now desperate to reach students, desperate to work. And what, what for, happens to you, million, if their world comes true? Well, I guess we go from working for poverty-level wages to working for no wages. We're extinct. I think, I think I disagree. I, I think that I, yeah. I would completely disagree. In fact, I think <laughs> yeah, I online learning is a rising tide that will lift all boats. I'll give you an example of Prof Professor Jamie LaRue. Uh, she teaches at Bunker Hill Community College in Massachusetts. And what she did was her students did not have access to a great computer science class. So she took the online material from one of our introductory computer science classes, and she used that in a blended model in a community class. And she said, if not for the online material from the edX course, she said she never would have been able to teach that course on our campus. And she also said she's irreplaceable. If not for her and her helping with the online material, her students would not have passed the course. So I think the teachers are necessary. And I think uh, bringing online learning into the classroom can really up-level the whole educational experience. I think you're uh, expecting too much of administrations. <laughs> I think if they have the opportunity to get rid of pretty much all professors, pipe in MOOCs from super professors, and then use low-paid adjuncts and TAs to basically proctor people, they would jump at that. They would do that in a second, maybe not at super elite institutions like this one, but at the regional and directional universities where the vast majority of Americans earn their degrees. I just can't see that not happening because it would help the bottom line so much. It, it, would, it would not happen when the supply and demand yeah, comes back in balance. Right now, too much supply of professors, not enough supply of completing students. A lot of students desire to complete drop out because we don't track their progress. We don't know when we lose them until the final grade. All right. In the future, we'll be able to do that, and therefore there'll be much more demand for adjuncts, and therefore salaries will rise. I want to go to the audience now for questions from you, and I want to ask the way this will work, especially if you came in late, if you raise your hand, uh, we need a microphone to be brought to you. We need you to stand up, tell us your name, and ask something that is really is a question, not to debate with the debaters, but to ask them a question that gets them uh, debating with one another and um, uh, to make it very short and terse. And if it's not on the topic that gets them continuing on this topic, I'll have to pass. Sir, right down front here. If you can stand again, thanks. Hi, my, 
My name is Ahmed. I'm a uh, grad student at NYU. My question is, do, don't you think that uh, vocational education is more suitable to be online and while uh, liberal arts uh, courses or materials uh, will be okay. more of And to some degree, Jonathan Cole made that point in his opening, but your side hasn't responded to the, the sense of different, kinds of different kinds of material may lend themselves to different kinds of settings. So I want to, and, and one of those settings cannot be online, liberal arts. Ben Nelson. So uh, I, I believe that there are different kinds of subject matter lend itself to different format of student-faculty ratios. But the question about whether or not technology can assist, whether it is a large lecture, a small seminar, or even a one-on-one tutorial, uh, in many cases is, uh, is clear. Now, you, you, can are, see a, you can see a creative poetry writing class online? Uh, well, there are creative poetry classes online, and, and uh, both in lecture format and as well as, as not. And let me tell you a but, couple but of things I, but I, I don't, the, I, don't right? I don't happen to know the, the, the texture of this, but how good an experience is t- doing poetry online? Uh, in, in it's a, amazing. In, in, I think it's phenomenal. I mean, yeah. it, uh, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm biased in that answer. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you where I, where I don't think that online instruction uh, uh, can uh, compare with offline, uh, even though it already is happening. Uh, in conservatory instruction, uh, if you are uh, training someone to be a pianist, training somebody to be a violinist, uh, very hard to deliver at a very professional level, not Suzuki method, um, very hard to get that level of nuance and, uh, and personal okay. guidance uh, via technology. All right, so I just want to go to the side on the, the other side. You're, so your opponents have argued that there is a small sector of uh, material that doesn't lend itself. You have conceded, I think, that there, is, there are areas that would lend themselves to, uh, to online learning. Well, I, I certainly do, and that's why the University of Phoenix exists, um, to raise human capital to the point where some people can get better jobs than they have, and there's no reason why uh, those kinds of enterprises shouldn't exist. I would simply like to raise, again, for uh, my worthy opponents, to answer the empirical questions that I raised at the very beginning. What's the cost model that will work that didn't work in the, in the 1990s? And the various other issues that have to do with intellectual property and, and the rest. If you don't answer those questions, you're living off the future. Let me, let me address the, the, the economic Anand. model question that you raised. In fact, I think you made an argument against yourself. So you said that MOOCs cost between $100,000 and $300,000 to create. You're absolutely right. They cost between $10,000 and half a million dollars to create. But the second time you offer the MOOC, or you bring that into your classroom, the third time, the fourth time, it's like a textbook. A tech for someone who's written a textbook took me five years to write the textbook, but then to stamp out a new textbook is, uh, you know, is 50 bucks or 100 bucks. So repeating is much easier. And with MOOCs and online education, that's how it is. The repetition is very cost-effective and very high quality. However, in a classroom, I'm not sure what they pay uh, you know, professors at uh, Columbia or other universities, but I know it's not $14,000. It's certainly on the order of $100,000 to $300,000. So in other words, we are teaching... Uh, we are paying $100,000 to $300,000 each time a course is repeated. So therefore, the existing model is broken. With MOOCs, we can fix that where the cost of creation is high, but the repetition, that's how you get the scaling okay, and the cost Jonathan, effectiveness. Okay, Jonathan Cole, that was an answer to your well, question. But I Rebecca, th- do you want to take that? 
Well, I mean, it's, I, I, I enjoy ribbing on tenured people who make too much money as much as the next guy, but the fact is that almost 80% of faculty today work off the tenure track, definitely do not make in the six figures, and over half of faculty working today are adjuncts like me who make in the low five figures. Most of our salaries begin with a one or a two. And Jonathan. I, must, I, must, I must say that you have given me the perfect reason for retiring faculty. <laughs> they make their MOOC and they leave the door. Uh, and you don't have to pay them again next year. Now, if they make two MOOCs, who owns the property? So to your, to your, the first point about uh, uh, retiring faculty after they create a MOOC, of course not. They have to be involved in uh, Then in no the, one would ever want to make a MOOC. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so that would be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Anand, no we want anymore. you to make a MOOC now. No, <laughs> no, 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 exactly. So, uh, so you make a MOOC, and, and then you have to support the MOOC. You teach, uh, teach the students. But you're not spending $100,000 $300,000 each time you teach it. You're still teaching it. You're still involved, but to a lesser extent. And the intellectual property question. The intellectual property is, 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 is very straightforward. Actually, I don't see what the, what the issue is. Um, the, uh, the courses and content, it's like uh, we've, we've addressed the problem with textbooks and other course content. So I frankly don't see an issue there. So I would have to take, discuss with you offline as to what issue you're seeing with IP because uh, there's a well-established model, and that's the same model that will work for well, do, uh, online do content. Do professors own the intellectual property? Do no, they it's get like, the, Do they get whatever income might be uh, available from uh, this, the MOOCs that are commercial enterprises? So with textbooks, the, uh, the IP is owned completely by the professor and the publisher. Universities are completely cut out from it. And with online education, I think here's a chance to save the university, where universities are having discussion, where three stakeholders can share the IP, not just the publisher and the professor, but the professor, the university, and in this case, the publisher is a MOOC platform like edX. There can be a three-way sharing of IP, which I think is the right way of doing it, as okay, opposed to the textbook model. I want to go to another question. Sir, right there. My name is Noel Cape, and I'm a professor at Columbia. Um, a simple model of the university is it, that it's in the business of both creating and disseminating information. Now, on this side of the house, I've heard nothing about creation. Does that mean essentially that the online operations well, can, are really freeloaders? Can you, um, because you are waving the mic, oh, the radio okay. audience, just ask a question tighter, tighter one one more time. A simple model of the university is that it both creates and disseminates information. I've heard the online people say nothing about creation. Does that mean that you're, in effect, freeloaders on the university system? Well, I, ben I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to address that. Uh, this uh, debate is not about uh, research. It is about uh, the dissemination of knowledge. It's only about the second part. Uh, so and, is that a yes to his uh, question? No, uh, it is not. Uh, I do think that what you enable when you remove the, constri uh, the constriction of the campus environment from not just the student but from the professor is that you can enable much more flexible research. I'll give you a couple of very quick examples. If you do field research, having a university job where you have to show up physically to class uh, nine months out of the year does not do wonders for your career, especially before you're tenured. Uh, or, like my father, who's a molecular biologist and is now doing structural biology, he needs to fly to the uh, particle accelerators in Europe uh, every three weeks just so he can uh, uh, shoot uh, photons at, at his crystals. Well, if he were still teaching, he's emeritus, so he doesn't, uh, he, doesn't uh, he wouldn't be able to do that, so, uh, at least in an offline environment. So, so research can also be dramatically helped 
by the removal of physical requirements, physical presence requirements for the faculty. What do you think of that, Rebecca? Which, I mean, it doesn't apply specifically to the kind of teaching that you're doing, but you would have, a, you would have the ability, for example, to travel and study and do sabbaticals, et cetera, and still teach. You like that? I mean, I think... Would you believe in it? For me, it sounds great because I'll never have a sabbatical anyway, but I think the few people in my discipline who are left on the tenure track would probably have a heart attack because it would be like, oh, I would have to coincide my sabbatical with teaching. Um, Yeah, I mean, I have to say with that, that is so esoteric, but I guess in an esoteric way, I I, I don't disagree with the opposite side on this particular thing. I I do disagree. I mean, Jonathan Cole. I'm, I'm not at all sure that you have a university if you were to admit that the sole function of that university in terms of bricks rather than clicks, although clicks will exist in it, is the research mission. And all the students are basically no longer there. Now, the essence of our great universities and our great colleges, whether they're very large state universities or much smaller ones, is that they create knowledge. They create discoveries and inventions. I don't see how taking students out of the laboratory is going to enhance that process since they are the people, the students, the postdocs and others, the postdoctoral fellows, they are often doing the bench research and learning from each other through close interaction. If you take all the undergraduates away and there are no bricks, I'm not sure what kind of university is left. Let me, uh, just, let me just say this, and I'll bring the question back to you. I want to remind you that we're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And the point was just made by Jonathan Cole that a, a world where universities devolve into institutions that basically do research and all of the undergraduates are off campus online is, a, is not a university that he would call a university. Uh, Anant, you want to respond to that? Let's be very careful here. Uh, I think we're taking some of the best institutions in the world, some really high-quality institutions, and, and, and tarring the whole world with this utopian brush. The world is not like that. Most universities in the world are not research institutions. Most colleges in the world, community colleges in the world, and high schools and and places where teaching happens are not research institutions. We happen to be in a research institution, which is great. So I think we really need to look at the average, the median, and universities around the world where education may be the predominant thing that happens. So I dream of a world where we have universities, where professors and others are creating content and also disseminating content, just that they do it differently. It's the same people, but they do it differently. They do it bringing a lot of online and so that they can spend a lot of time creating great content, which they don't have the time to do because they have to do it every single semester. So now I can really create great content, put a huge amount of effort, and then focus on interacting with students in ways that I cannot do today. Let's go to another question. Professor Mayer. You're a little bit of a ringer, but I think... <laughs> yes. No, this yeah. is... I, I asked this uh, not on the Richmond Center behalf, but actually because I study real estate. And in the 1990s, we heard people say that an online address was actually much more important than a physical address. But we see technology companies like Google and Facebook locating in the most expensive real estate in the country and the world, presumably about the interactions of their employees who are working together and creating together. What's different about the business of education than the business of technology and creativity? Ben Nelson. 
Uh, I actually don't think it's, uh, it's very different at all. And in fact, you can learn from what these companies are doing. Uh, if you look at where these companies set up uh, 10, 15 years ago, they created campuses. Google has a campus. Uh, and they said, oh, we're going to provide everything you want uh, here on the campus, free food and uh, laundry and, you know, slides and things like that. And guess what their employees said? We don't want to live on the campus. We want to live in the city. Open up an office in San Francisco. Open up offices in New York City, right? Provide free food. That's great. But, uh, but don't think you can recreate the world at huge cost and make it better than reality. And so I think that's highly illustrative. I think that the more a university opens, the more the university embraces the resources of the world and is open to students, whether they are their students or not, the more vibrant the physical elements of the university will become, like the research infrastructure, and the less the university will start to compete or will continue to compete in areas like who has the better climbing gym. Okay, I want to take some other questions. I'm favoring the front because I can see it more easily, so I just want to um, bring somebody in. Ma'am, um, all the way in the back there. And again, um, if you could stand up. My name is Jessica. I'm wondering um, how... Um, Jessica, I've just been asked in uh, my headphone to ask you to step down into the, the brighter light so that the television camera can see you for the live stream. And by the way, I didn't mention this in the beginning, but we've been live streaming, and we always do on, with Fora.tv and on our website, iq2us.org. So that's why you need to walk towards the light. Can you see me now? Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm wondering how students are better prepared after receiving their degree. I, I, can you give a tiny... I asked for really short questions, but you, you got me. <laughs> Although just a little more context. So assuming that students online and offline complete their degree, how are they better prepared for the world? If they're... How do, they, how do the online versus the old offline. model students... Okay. So to rephrase, if I'm correct, you want to know whether students who graduate with a largely offline diploma, earned largely offline, are as good, you know, their, their education is as high quality as those who graduate from the old model. Is that correct? Or, or are you asking how are they doing getting jobs? Exactly. Not, not comparing the quality of the education, but how are they prepared For the to real enter world. the world? Okay. Let's uh, put that question first to the side that has more experience with that. I would think Anant and Ben Nelson, that's you. So here again, I think uh, online learning as we know it, uh, I really call it online learning 2.0 because the old, uh, you know, the old style online learning uh, really gave online learning a bad name. And I think things are very different today. Online learning today is completely different, and, and you should go check it out. It's, uh, we have online labs. We have discussion forums. The kind of things we can grade are simply, we're simply unimaginable. Oh, oh, okay, but let, let's ago. stipulate that it's better now. But, but to her question, how, how are the graduates so if doing you assume, So if you assume this kind of quality of online learning, I think at the end of the day, it really depends on the content. If a great teacher created the online content, or if a great t teacher taught the in-person campus course, and if this, the learner took one or the other and had a great experience and a degree, um, I would say that it shouldn't matter which one they did. And do you think that's realistic that if two guys walk into, uh, two job uh, interviewees walk in and one got a degree online and one got a degree at a, at a campus and we don't need to stipulate which one it was, let's say that they're roughly equal in terms of the kinds of courses offered, that the employer is going to look at them equally? Um, I don't think so. I think if, if someone paid, had enough money to pay for a completely campus experience and the same quality education, uh, they would have better soft skills. But I think the debate is about 
fewer bricks, more clicks, where's the emphasis? And so I think that on campuses where they bring in a lot more online learning, the blend of the online with some of the in-person soft skills and so on can be substantially better than anything we have on campus today. Would the other side like to respond because the last two questions have gone to this side. If you don't want to, I can move on. Why don't we, we, why don't we move on? Let's move on. Does anybody have a question that would be more focused towards this side? Ma'am, right here. just curious for this side if you felt like maybe if future faculty or future professors took more training or became somehow more involved in the the online world or you know that that kind of iteration they could still be a more competitive uh, valuable part that's of That's a great question. That's a great question. It's almost a challenge to you, Rebecca Schumann, to, to <laughs> get with the program. Um, <laughs> but, but what about what that? funding? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, maybe. I tried to flip my class last semester as an experiment, and it didn't go that well, but I used pretty good content. It was just that the students didn't like it. And what I find from talking to my students is that they do prefer the face-to-face experience. That's just what they prefer. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know if I get really good at making podcasts or if I had some higher production values with my YouTubes or something, maybe. But right now, I just, just I don't think it has to do. The MOOC that I'm taking on edX is gorgeously produced, and the guys are experts, and it's still just kind of dabbling, like it's not a replacement for a class yet. Jonathan Cole, do you want to answer the question as well? Well, I mean, obviously, it's a hypothetical and uh, an interesting one. Um, If more people had experience in producing these things, uh, they, they might teach better courses, but we don't know. I mean, one of the problems that I have with this is that all of this is that it seems to me that there are many possibilities for technology and many ways in which technology can improve universities. But we don't know, for example, the answer to the question before, which is how do graduates of one form or another um, respond uh, in terms of uh, employment opportunities. We don't know very much about different learning styles. We have so little evidence that it seems to me what we're doing is we are essentially casting our fate to the wind and saying, look, this is a possibility, not necessarily a fact, because we don't have very much empirical evidence to demonstrate the case of our opponents. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And remember how you voted just before the arguments begin, right after these closing statements, which will be two minutes each. You will be asked to vote a second time, and then our winner will be declared. So on to round three. Round three, closing statements from each debater in turn, uninterrupted. The motion, more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Anant Agarwal, CEO of edX and a professor at MIT. Um, you know, I have to say, you know, uh, we heard some great uh, statements from our uh, colleagues. Uh, I would love to take a class from Rebecca. But this is not about comparing the absolute best that you can get in a particular kind of course against uh, the online learning of yesteryear. I think we need to look at where is, where is the average going to be? Where is the majority of the, of the university, the classroom, the students going to be? 
And I think uh, in Rebecca's case, she was able to recite the, the uh, names of uh, 15 of her students. In my case, it would take me forever to recite the names of 155,000 students that got something out of my course. But I will, I will tell you about, uh, very quickly about three students. Lord Mukendi. He came up from a family of 14 in, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He goes to the University of Cape Town to learn computer science. In his first year, his father passes away. He can't pay his tuition anymore. And so he goes off into the world, and he's been working for 10 years. Now that online learning is available, he's going back to study, and he's taking these MOOCs, and he's learning. And he's saying, I'm, I'm going to get a better job because of the kind of learning that I'm doing. I can give you name after name. Amol Bhave, 15-year-old student from Jabalpur in India, took my course, did really well. He applied to uh, MIT, and he got into MIT, and now he's a sophomore at MIT. And at MIT, two out of three students today, compared to virtually zero two years ago, are now doing blended online learning. MIT has moved into this in a big way. They're blending the classroom with a lot of online technology. So 2,800 out of 4,500 students at MIT are now using the edX platform on campus in a blended model. And this is just two years old. So I think if you look at where the average is going to be, I think things are going to be very different going ahead. So I would like you to think about the average student around the world in terms of where universities should be. And given that, uh, I really uh, urge you to think about uh, more clicks, fewer bricks in terms of increasing access and also improving the quality of education on our campuses. Thank, Thank you, you, Anand Agarwal. Thank you. Our motion is that more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Jonathan Cole. He is the John Mitchell Mason Professor at Columbia University. Those of you among the jury uh, sitting out there, uh, consider closely whether my worthy opponents here, and I think they've made very interesting cases, are espousing what is in fact fact, what is fiction, or what is wishful thinking. Let me conclude with three anecdotes. A while ago, I offered a course in law, science, and society. It was designed to challenge the presuppositions and biases of the students. Frankly, it was designed to be both challenging and unsettling. At the end of the semester, one of my very smart students said to me, I love this, uh, this course, uh, the debates we had and the people I met, but every time I left this class, I had a headache, <laughs> not knowing quite what I believed in any, any longer. And I said, Sam, those headaches are a great thing. It shows that you were really thinking hard, and those debates and those doubts you had are an essential part of learning. No set of clicks will replace the student's experience. Then there are the extremely popular courses at Stanford's D School, an institute for design and innovation, where one of the assignments was to rethink how people eat ramen noodles or an assignment that led to a news-reading app that was bought by LinkedIn, LinkedIn for $90 million. The students came from every field, sciences, engineering, social sciences, etc. The students were, were taught by David Kelly, uh, one of the school's founders, and they were in, invited to really think of developing empathy muscles. They were also taught uh, to forego computer screens and spreadsheets and focus on people. At the D School, says Kelly, we learn by doing. Sound, it's a lot like John Dewey's philosophy brought back to being. It's had a huge success with students churning out dozens of innovative products and startups. Um, Jonathan Cole, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you. Two minutes go by so fast. They do. They do. 
Our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And here to summarize his position supporting this motion, Ben Nelson, founder, chairman, and CEO of the Minerva Project. I wouldn't want to end this debate without getting into the facts that Jonathan so uh, desperately wanted us to get to. So I'll give you two facts. One fact is what we actually know, not about online education, but about offline education. Not at the community college, not at a state university, but at our most illustrious universities. Professor at Harvard University, Eric Mazur, who teaches physics, wanted to know how much his students retained from his physics classes. So he surveyed them two years after the end of the course. You know what their retention rate was? 10%. The question isn't as much whether or not online education is effective, is that it can't possibly be any worse than the existing model. (laughs) In fact, even when you give students a choice, as was done with the very first MOOC, one offered by Sebastian Thrun at Stanford University. Sebastian Thrun is a celebrity. He is the reason why you go to courses. He invented the self-driving car. Big guy. And he had a course of 200 students on artificial intelligence. And he gave them an option. Schmooze with me in the lecture hall or go on version 0.1 of this terrible product and take the course online. Of the 200 students, 85% never came back to the lecture hall. 85% decided to take online course in the very first most rudimentary version of online education. You don't need much more data than that to realize that the future of universities won't be without bricks, won't be all clicks, but will certainly be far more clicks than bricks. Thank you. Thank you, Ben Nelson. And that is our motion. More clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And here to summarize her position against this motion, Rebecca Schumann. Thank you. I just want to go on the record that Anant thinks I am the best at teaching. I'm going to put that in all of my review portfolios. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about my class again, not naming them, but I'm going to talk about what we did this week. So I don't lecture. My room is a seminar room. It's not a lecture hall. And this week we're reading Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe, one of my favorite books, one of the greatest books of all time. And our activity this week was about uh, proverbs from the Igbo culture and how they figure into the narration of the book. And so uh, one of those proverbs is, looking at a king's mouth, one would think that he never sucked at his mother's breast. And I said to my class, this is a very evocative proverb, very provocative. What do you think it means in relation to the protagonist Okonkwo's struggle with his masculinity? And I just called on a student at random because I like doing that. It's fun. And he said, "Uh, I don't know. You should never forget where you came from. And I said, okay, let's start. Let's do it. So we went back and forth in the class, me back to him, other students to him, other students to me. If you want to know how it turned out, you're going to have to come to my class. Um, But the point is that most of the students in the class had never thought about that proverb like that before. They'd never thought about it at all. This was a moment that we created together. This was a moment we created together in real time, face-to-face, in the same room, with energy you could feel, with energy between people that you could feel, and that changed us all just a little bit. Um, The second part of this motion is that the lecture hall is obsolete, and it's certainly true that in a thousand-person lecture, that kind of moment that you can feel is few and far between. But I don't think the answer is to put that lecture online um, in five-minute chunks, and I don't necessarily think it's to get rid of the classroom altogether for um, some fascinating-sounding 
space technology of the future that I haven't seen yet, um, which sounds great. Um, so that's why I hope that you will join our team in voting no on the motion, more clicks, fewer gricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca Schumann. And that concludes our closing remarks. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued the best. We're going to ask you again to go to the keypads at your seat and now vote a second time, and we're going to get the readout almost instantaneously. Same as before. You push number one if you're for the motion, number two if you are against, and number three if you became or remain undecided. And we'll let the voting go on for about another 15 seconds, and then we will lock it out. And while that is happening, I just want to say a few things. One is... um, our, it's our first experience in coming up to Columbia, uh, and it's been fantastic for us. And th- what really sealed that was the quality of this debate and the, the, the level of argument and, uh, and enthusiasm and intelligence and decency and honesty and respect for one another that these debaters brought to the stage. And I just want to thank them for uh, hitting all of those marks, which are the goals of Intelligence Squared. We also want to give thanks again to uh, Columbia University's Richard Paul Richmond Center for partnering uh, with us for this debate. It is the fourth time, and it's a great partnership, and we hope that it continues to go forward. Uh, We would, yeah, round of applause for that, of course. We'd love to have you tweet about the debate. The handle, our handle is at IQ2US and at Columbia underscore biz, that's B-I-Z. The hashtag for this debate is online ed. Our next debate is next week uh, uh, in Midtown, April 9th at the Kaufman Music Center. It's Broadway and 67th. The motion that night is millennials don't stand a chance. Uh, We're looking at the fact that the media often paints millennials as uniquely, you know, uh, narcissistic and coddled and helicoptered, but we're asking also, are we blinded to the qualities that they embody that we should be admiring, like openness and optimism and innovation? For the motion, we have Binta Niambi Brown. She's a lawyer. She's a startup advisor. She's a human rights advocate who was named one of Fortune Magazine's 40 under 40 business leaders. Her partner is W. Keith Campbell. He's a psychology professor at the University of Georgia, and he co-author of the book, The Narcissism Epidemic. Against them, David Burstein, at 25 years old, he has already directed two documentaries, founded a voter engagement organization, and published a book. How annoying, really. Fast Future. His book, I'm joking. His fast book is Fast Future, How the Millennial Generation is Shaping Our World. And his partner is Jessica Gross. She is a self-defined ancient millennial. She's a journalist and author of the novel Sad Desk Salad. And then on May 7th, our final debate of the season, where we debate the question... Is death final? Tickets for all of that will be at our remaining spring debates on sale through our website, www.iq2us.org. And for those of us who can't join our live audience, there are many other ways to join our debates that involve going online. You can watch the live stream at iq2us.org or on forward.tv and listen on NPR stations across the nation. I also want to say, um, Jonathan Cole, you sounded like you got cut off in your closing statement in the middle of something that sounded really well-planned and eloquent, and I would like, if you are okay with it, to post your full text on our website so that it's, so that it's up there. I'm sure everyone's going to go to it, yes. <laughs> It's, it wasn't just to make you feel better. I think everyone I will go to I appreciate it. The, uh, the sentiment. I really do. Okay. 
All right, so I have the final results. It is all in. You have voted twice. Our motion is this, more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. Remember, the way this worked, the team whose numbers have changed the most between the two votes will be declared our winner. On the first vote, on the motion, more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. Before the debate, 18% agreed with this motion. 59% were against. 23% were undecided. Those are the first results. Here is the second round of voting. In the second round, the team arguing for the motion went from 18% to 44%. They picked up 26 percentage points. That's the number to beat. The team against the motion, their first vote was 59%. Second vote, 47%. They lost 12 percentage points. This this debate goes to the team arguing for the motion. More clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time.